0: All right. So I'm here with Daniel Stride again, who is of course the first guest on this podcast way back whenever that was. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, so he's come back now to talk about the nature of Middle earth, which was of course released uh, earlier this year, 2021. And it's uh, ostensibly, I suppose the final book, although <laughs> perhaps I shouldn't say that, uh, with any degree of certainty.
1: It's, uh, currently, it's currently the final <laughs> book.
0: <laughs> yes, that's right. Assembling Tolkien's, uh, some of Tolkien's writings, um, and of course it's edited by Carl uh, Hostetter, who is well-known in the Tolkien community, particularly, of course, the linguistic, Tolkien linguistics community. He was, or and is indeed, a an editor of a couple of journals, sort of Tolkien in linguistics, I believe, continues in those roles, and was sort of entrusted uh, by Christopher, as far as I understand the story, to bring some of this final uh, some of these final writings to publishable form, and was indeed handed a bundle of of, of these notes and these uh, pieces by Christopher. And many of these, uh, and I should say, of course, Christopher Tolkien passed away. Was it? I think it was last year. Am I right in saying that? Uh, twenty twenty,
1: uh, January last year.
0: January, yes, right, yep. It was enough. <laughs> <laughs> yes, funny enough, when I was in New Zealand the last time, just before everything closed. And so Carl Hosteter has now published this lovely hardback, and of course there's a sort of deluxe edition to go along with that. So um, for anyone interested, you can you can purchase that. It should be fairly widely available now, although um, I know <laughs> there's been some supply chain issues to Australia and New Zealand, and I haven't actually seen it in shops yet. I, I imported mine from the UK yeah, I, I had
1: to get a bookshop to order mine, and, um, mm-hmm. and they basically had they they had to, they, they had to basically keep apologising to me as the date kept <laughs> getting, the, the date kept getting pushed back. I mean, mm-hmm. my copy mm-hmm. only arrived on the fifteenth of December.
0: <laughs> yep, yep. So um, there is, of course, also the the uh, ebook version, um, which is not as interesting to read and actually somewhat more difficult. It's because it's of course it's easy to sort of flip around the the paper. Or the hard, the hardback. Um, because this is really a book that you, well, you may want to read it, I suppose, from start to finish, but, but you can also just dip in and out as interest um, dictates for you. So we're going to talk about this book today. It'll be, I guess, sort of a, a review uh, and, uh, and, and a description of some of the contents and we'll, we'll have a look at the different sections. But, um, I guess just to, to begin. Let's just talk about overall thoughts. So, you've, as you noted there, you've just uh, recently acquired the book and then um, you finished reading it. So, what did you think? Uh, what were your sort of overall takeaways from, from the, uh, there
1: the book? Are, there, there are some very, very interesting nuggets of, of world building <laughs> information in there. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I would also suggest the book is, the book reveals a somewhat frustrating aspect to tolkien to, to, to tolkien as a writer
2: hmm. um,
1: the extent and this this probably sounds far more harsh than I'm intending it to it it feels like in certainly the first third of the first third of the book, the hmm. materials prioritize world over story
2: yeah, yep, yeah.
1: to the point where. He's almost, I mean, essentially, what you're seeing with this book is a continuation very much of what you saw in, in the Towards the End of Borgot's Ring, where Tolkien, Tolkien literally, from the 1960s on towards the end of his life, made a very concerted effort to try and bring his world to a level of philosophical and scientific consistency at the mm. expense of myth yeah because when he when he first started his mythos it was very heavily myth-based mm. in his later life he was moving towards a level of scientific and philosophical consistency to to a near to a degree which i mean i some people might disagree i personally don't like very much um mm. And the, the, the example that we get from Morgoth's Ring is his decision to replace the flat earth version of his mythology
2: mm-hmm.
1: This is actually the version that appears in the published Silmarillion, where the, where Arda, the world, initially starts off as being flat, and then, and then it's essentially lit up by the two trees, and so on and so forth, after the two trees are destroyed by Melkor and Goliant. He, um, the, the um, fruits turn into the sun and moon um hmm. the world then is the world is then made around after the after the downfall of Numenor. um tolkien decided that 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 wouldn't fly in later life so he essentially he constructed a round world version of his mythos where the sun and moon had existed from the very beginning and 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 the world was round from the very beginning. To get to try and get round this problem with the two trees, he um, he created a. And this this feels rather forced. He created a dome of darkness over Valinor, mm. um, <laughs> where the where basically the sun and moon don't apply. As it's entirely by the two trees and. Yeah. I mean my and I mean quite quite apart from the, that, that dome of feeling rather forced and rather taking away the power of the two trees' destruction, it also yeah. lends itself to the obvious problem and in light of the fact that the fall of Numenor is explicitly in Lord of the Rings and as such is part of the published work couldn't the mm. the Numenoreans were, were, amaz- were were amazing mariners if the world was round, why wouldn't they just sail east of Elanor? <laughs>
0: That's a great point. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, it's, so the, the round world scenario was very, very. I've I've always found it quite frustrating, and I'm mm. very, very grateful that Christopher Tolkien decided to keep the um, decided to keep the uh, the flat Earth version for the um the 1977 published Silmarillion. So, what we've actually now the thing to remember about the nature of Middle Earth, because of when it was written, because of the text that it was written from. Um, from from the late 50s until the early 1970s, that is essentially positing a world where the round world version applies. So essentially, hmm. he's the one aspect that Tolkien found this useful for was that it dramatically it enables him to, to dramatically extend the time periods from the waking of from the awaking of me of it, the awakening of men and elves backwards to mm-hmm. essentially give them far more time to develop specific cultures before they interact with the stories. And yep. that's essentially what you're dealing with with the first third the first third of it. Um, also, and again this is this is where this is the illustration of where it gets frustrating, he spends an inordinate amount of time and mathematical tables trying yes. to um, Essentially, he's trying to develop a coherent theory of elvish aging, and then apply that to his stories. Mm. And it does, as he himself actually realised, and we'll probably get to this later with Maeglin. It doesn't actually. <laughs> work. It 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 might work quite neatly with Elrond and Galadriel in the Third Age. It does not work at all for Maeglin in the First Age,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and. Now normally this would my instincts here is he should have realised that I can't I can't fit my mythos into that sort of coherent scientific framework. And so therefore, you know, I shouldn't treat it like that. However, hmm. you get the situation where he literally decides based off his ground up theory of age of elvish aging that Maglin Maeglin would essentially be too young for Gond, too young Slesom on Idril in um in, in Gondolin. Therefore, he must have been born in Valinor. Therefore, Aiol must have been mm, mm. <laughs> and, uh,
0: it Generates all these interminable little it generates so many
1: so many problems, and mm. it's very it's as I said, it's a very very frustrating book. Um. It does actually get quite noted quite a lot in some of the other reviews I've seen that it does actually show a mathematical side to Tolkien that most people didn't anticipate. I mean, mm. it is true he was dealing he, he was dealing with a world without pocket calculators. However, it is worth remembering he would have had access to slide rules, <laughs> and slide rules are actually for their time were actually pretty decent things. So um,
0: yes, yes, I feel like a lot of people don't even realise that. They were, um, they were a technology, you know, prior to oh, yes. introduction in of calculator.
1: This actually just goes slightly off topic. Arthur C. in mm. the 1950s actually wrote about a um, a space journey to Mars where the astronauts are using slide rules.
0: <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. Well, wow. that's that's interesting. Which story is that? It's uh,
1: the Sands of Mars, I believe, okay. in 1952.
0: Right. Yeah, I haven't read that that one. That Mm. that
1: even predates the material in this book, so um, Mm -hmm. it wasn't as if Tolkien was just dealing with pen and paper and trying to work these um, (laughs) work out these calculations. But as I said, so um, I've I've been a bit harsh on the book so far, but um, there is immense frustration to be found. There is also um, there is also some very very fascinating nuggets of uh, Mm -hmm. information to be discovered in there um Hmm. which i suppose we'll get to but yeah that's my that's my overall thought
0: yep fantastic yeah i I think i have a um had a similar reaction to it especially to the first couple of sections of the book which deals with much of the material that you've been mentioning so we have of course part one which deals with which is time and aging and and i suppose collects you know um a, a different um Sort of minor and some some of the longer pieces dealing with um, as you've mentioned sort of time in Arda Valinorian time divisions um, time scales and rates of growth um, difficulties in chronology aging of the elves etc these sorts of things concerning the Quendi and their mode of life and growth sort of trying to as you've already mentioned sort of you know develop a, a consistent theory of elvish um, I guess lifespans. Um then body, mind and spirit is this next section and looks at um I guess metaphysical issues, natural natural issues in in that sort of metaphysical sense. and then finally, in part three, we get sort of nature in that um, you know environmental sense, the world, its land, and its inhabitants. and for me, of course, um, being interested in the Numenoreans and various parts of material culture that was the most interesting because we have
1: oh I, um, I definitely think that, the, that overall the Numenorean material is probably the best, um, mm,
2: probably mm. the
1: best. It, it gives a very full it gives a very full vision of the ecology and the, mm. of the ecology of the place
0: yeah yeah it does it's quite extraordinary and of course we have the famous passage there um, regarding the dancing bears, which we'll come to, I suppose, <laughs> and which has been mentioned by just about everyone who's who 's had a look at the book um, but there are also um, in in that third section there 's also sort of discussions pertaining to something like evolution, which I think was in the primal impulse section um, and uh,
1: various yes, other and that's that third section mm. in many mm. respects that it's very much a grab bag of um, <laughs> all sorts of different um, aspects mm, of mm. Tolkien's world rather than sort of any coherent um, thing in its mm. own right, which, um, you know, as I said, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. There's uh, Given the fragmentary nature of this stuff, there's also a lot of frustration.
0: Mm, yeah, and I should mention also in that third section, indeed the final uh, piece that is uh, that is displayed here or that is presented here apart from the appendices – Etc., is the Rivers and Beacon Hills of Gondor, which uh, is nice to see finally published in an accessible form because that is uh, quoted, well, as far as I can tell, quite regularly. And, you know, is, is again another fairly readable, or is an example of a fairly readable and digestible um, sort of literary slash linguistic slash sort of. Um, geographical discussion, which Tolkien sort of excels at.
1: Um, I mean, the other, the other thing i just quickly note, mm. the, the, the particular gem I got out of that particular section was um, the uh, Baldur, Son of Rago, the skeleton discoverer at the past of the dead. And essentially we, although I'm aware this information has been previously, I think, published in the um, in the Hammond and Skull Companion volume. I yeah. since I've never actually read the Hammond and Skull Companion, uh, mm-hmm. companion volume, I, I was I was thus you know quite pleased that um, you know six, uh, well over six decades after the Lord of the Rings came out, we at last get an explanation, but for, for 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 that particular mysterious door.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, and he sort of suggests there that um, it might be. The, the the leading to a, a way um to a, a sort of a temple right that yes, that's yes. the part a, you're talking
1: about right? a, a dark temple
0: yeah. yeah yeah so that um is quite pregnant with sort of imaginative possibilities to, um and he also i think in the same one of the we we should say that these are in footnotes just trying to find um it's also in this this essay. This is what makes it interesting, uh, in particular to me, where he questions page three ninety three. He questions um, or brings into doubt perhaps Faramir's um, division of men into the sort of middlemen and. Um,
2: um, I mean, be- that-
1: I mean, bearing in mind uh, based off the the peoples of Middle Earth. Mm. Uh, tolkien does actually imply that, that that division is simply um gondorian propaganda
0: <laughs> yes yes that's true that there's an essay yes you're referring to dwarves and men the essay yes, yes. in in that yeah that's right um yeah so there's a couple of places that he sort of brings that up again here but um in any case yes so that that final piece is a is is a nice um is a nice place for the book to to come to a to a close, and it, um, as, as we said, packs in a lot of little interesting titbits. But um, I guess to go back to some of that earlier uh, material in the first two sections, you sort of mentioned that Tolkien wanted to develop this, you know, consistency, perhaps scientific consistency even.
2: Yeah.
0: This is perhaps a bit of a speculative question, but what do you think might have motivated such a a shift in style uh, from the mythic to the not only historical, but almost scientific, um, anthropological, um, because it just seems to really possess him in the 60s and 70s, sort of, well, early 70s, of I course. mean,
1: I've occasionally thought about this, and I'd almost be inclined to blame the Lord of the Rings for that, if that makes any yeah. sense. Because yeah. I think because the version of the Silmarillion we have got, the Flat Earth mm. version, is very much the version that was solidified by the ni- by the late nineteen thirties. So before before the Lord of the Rings, there are some exceptions. I mean Galadriel had to be retrospectively inserted and in the rest of it.
2: Mm. Um,
1: what you're seeing with the Lord of the Rings though, um, essentially that was that was Tolkien having to deal with an inquisitive public for the first time. And mm. he's he notes in his letters that he actually had to um you know, he was confronted with, with all sorts of queries from all sorts of different people from all walks of life about each individual aspect of his world.
2: Mm, and mm.
1: I think that rather than simply just doing what C. S. Lewis probably would have done and just sort of hand waved it all, I think um Tolkien I think took took such matters much, much more seriously. Mm-hmm. Um which is, I mean, which works well enough, well enough for The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings operates in a, I mean, we've got the mysterious exceptions like Tom Bombadil, but <laughs> it operates on a sufficiently recognizable, orderly world that you can do that sort of thing. The first stage stories where you're getting into remote high fantasy do not work as well. Mm-hmm. For, that, for that particular framework and um you you're you're left trying to take the myths out of out of myth basically which um again we'll 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 probably never know what, what motivated Tolkien but as I said um, my instinct is that um this this was this was essentially an outgrowth of this was an outbreak of the Lord of the Rings and its and its um and its reception.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: yeah I tend to agree with that as well uh, because it's only really, as you've mentioned, you know, after the publication of The Lord of the Rings and even perhaps the second edition, which was in the 60s, I think, that we, we start to get a lot of this material. And something that occurred to me as I was reading it was that, that it's called The Nature of Middle-earth. It's very sort of definitive title, um, sort of unlike, say, Unfinished Tales, which... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, suggests that <laughs> that these are sort of uh, partial by by their nature, um, and that the subtitle does have sort of late writings on the land's inhabitants and metaphysics of Middle Earth. But is this potentially misleading? And I've seen a bit of this online in forums and things.
1: Uh, in I, 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 I do think one thing mm. that really should be emphasised, and indeed, and it, we 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 should we, we have to be grateful to host, uh, host to, to for putting this together. Um, mm. I do think it really should have been emphasised. These are very much Tolkien's the last decade or so of Tolkien speculating on his world and mm. potentially hinting about where he would have gone if he had lived a few more years. But mm. these are and, and, and a more honest title for the book would be Tolkien's Tolkien speculative guesses from the late 1950s <laughs> on. <onwards>.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, I mean, not, I mean, not quite as elegant, terms, but
1: yeah. One really key thing to remember, um, even more so than, uh, I mean, with the history of Middle-earth, the last three volumes, I mean, there's a lot of information in there that has kind of become de facto, you know, de facto canon, de facto canon within the fan community. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it, it's, it's, uh, and that's, that's absolutely fair enough. Um the material here, on the other hand, I there's there's quite a lot of stuff that you have to be very very careful about before yep. before declaring a canon. Yeah. I
2: yeah. mean,
1: as I said, the the example of the example of Noldor and Aeol, um alone should be um, <laughs> basically should be setting up warning beacons about yeah. um, about how you should approach this book.
0: Yeah. and that. To take that example completely changes the sort of thematic character of that story (laughs) and and just um you know in service of some sort of uh, you know as you've sort of said a fairly arcane piece of world building or metaphysics um yeah so i guess to look then at the three major sections so I mentioned, we've talked briefly about um, the rivers and beacon hills of Gondor, for example, which is the last piece in this. But um, in part one, of course, which I think is probably the longest, longest yes, part, it yeah. Um, it also feels
1: well, the longest.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And this is where, of course, we find so many of those mathematical tables, um, and which, as you, as you said, might be surprising to some people. So, were there any particular sections in in that fir- or you know chapters in that first section that was um, of particular note? Of course, we can't we can't sort of go through each one, but um, yeah, were there, were there any that stood out to you
2: um,
1: as not-
0: noteworthy or?
1: I mean, so I mean, the, the one the, the, I mean, cause of course we um, from the War of the Jewels, so the eleventh hmm. edition of the History of Middle Earth. We have we've already seen the the legend of the elvish awakening at Kuneivan.
2: Yeah, yeah. With
1: the um, the original fathers, here we've actually got a good deal more context for it. And mm, in fact, mm. the most interesting aspect of um, of the first section, from from my point of view, which which of course takes into account the very the greatly extended time frame we are dealing with,
2: is mm, the fact mm.
1: that those original fathers um, basically were the ones who became Avari. That, uh, <clears throat> that Ingwe, Finwe and Elway were quite far down the generational food chain.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: there's also, of course, the different motivations that they are given. Like, um, Finwe um, Finway believed that Muriel would, would thrive um, would, would thrive in Valinor with, no- with the knowledge available there. And Elway is Seemingly convinced that um, oh, we can simply come back to Middle Earth whenever we like once um, mm. once Melkor has been dealt with. Um, but uh, but yeah, so essentially it was that that particular the the um, that that particular aspect I found quite interesting. Um, and of course, you know, he goes into that. That's also, of course, where you find the table because he, he spends <laughs> a lot of time figuring out. Well what is the population of the the great march west of the elves and hmm. basically tries to rationalize it so so how can we arrange it so that there's twenty thousand of them and, <laughs> and they periodically stop and they start growing and um, they start growing the wheat and all the rest of it so um but yes it's uh, uh so that 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 was that was the bit I generally found quite uh, i found quite interesting the the rest of hmm. it um the, the rest, the rest of it's not so much. Though I would note that the discussion of elvish life cycle at least gives us some context to that, to a certain old and mysterious passage on elven facial hair, which talks <laughs> about elves not being able to grow facial hair until until their third cycle of life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we that we've we've at least got some idea what he might what he what he what he might have meant by circles of life now.
2: Mm,
0: yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Some of that material on the Elvish life cycle cycles. Um, there is a section called Elvish life cycles, 154, I think, page 154. Um, you know, really just puts to paper some of that, I suppose, very bare thought process that Tolkien is obviously going through um, in preparation for writing things like. Um, the Laws and Customs of the Elder and other um, texts like that, which have already been published, of course. And I think somewhere on your blog, I can't remember exactly.
1: Oh, yes, yes. I I, I actually ended up, this was, dear God, it's probably about four years ago now.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> I actually wrote a, uh, what wound up to be, being quite a, 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 a total of about 7,000 words and split across two blog posts. Mm. On the way Tolkien, tr- the way Tolkien treats rape in his stories.
2: Oh yes. And yes.
1: Basically, I wound up arguing, um, I, I, I wound up arguing that um, that laws and customs of the Elder really does not fit the actual stories, and should be taken with a massive grain of salt.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And in some respects, that that remains my viewpoint applied to this book um it's very very interesting to see you know to see Tolkien's thought processes but um but yeah Mm. um it it doesn't actually reflect the ways he actually wrote the stories
0: yeah yeah exactly and I guess what I wanted to ask then was um and that's the that's exactly the post I was referring to so we have this material in this book and as you mentioned some of the history of Middle Earth material as well and it's treated you know it's sort of assimilated by the fandom and then it you know, at least some of it is, is sort of written into things like um, the uh, – what's that wiki called? The um, – not the Lord of the Rings wiki, the, the better one. I think it's just called oh, Tolkien. Gateway. Gateway, that's right, yeah. It's written into things like that, and then it's um, sort of used by, say, YouTubers who write these law videos and sort of present this law as though it was sort of just – you know, history in the real world is that there were no sort of uncertainty about certain events and places and occurrences. So, but for me in reading Tolkien, there's always been this, I suppose, dissociation between the literary works and some of this other more speculative material and, or some of this, you might say, world-building metaphysical material, which has always seemed to me, um, it sounds like you might agree with this, sort of not only secondary, but also perhaps in some senses, um, you know, unhelpful even.
1: I mean, um, it's, I wouldn't, I mean, it's the, the feeling that quite a lot of it does feel, yeah, it feels, it does feel quite like a dead end.
2: Yeah. As in yeah. a
1: creative sense. Mm, that
2: mm. Rather
1: than, um, rather than sort of developing, developing existing stories and new directions or, or writing new stories, you're you're essentially trying to analyze analyze your own work from a particular from a particular viewpoint and of course that viewpoint might might then subsequently change and mm. it, it 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 dare i say it's it, it's not a very satisfying reading experience to be fair that mm. has to be kept in mind Tolkien didn't intend this stuff to be written
2: <laughs> mm.
1: I mean, if this had been any other, any other author, chances are these notes would have not, would not have seen the light of day. Mm, But, uh, but yes, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's, I mean, I'm very grateful that Tolkien, you know, provide, you know, uh, provided some stuff in Morgoth's Ring, for instance, about, um, the diff, the differing motivations of, of Morgoth and Sauron. I mean, Mm, I generally mm. find that essay to be very, very interesting, together with his, um, his contortions about the origins of the orcs and
2: uh, <laughs> how exactly
1: that fits within his um, within his metaphysical worldview. I mean, I mean, it's a case of saying, you know, these these notes and these notes and late essays are actually more an insight into Tolkien the man than they are into than they are into Middle Earth.
0: Yes, yeah, I tend to agree um, with that. But I suppose my my question sort of is. How – if we take – it's sometimes hard, I feel, to take Tolkien seriously as a literary writer, not only because sometimes he's disparaged, perhaps not so much um, now as used to be the case, but but he's also increasingly being treated as a kind of world-building franchise, just like, say, the Marvel Universe. And sort of all the information that we get is sort of – it's all sort of equally – it's all flatly sort of – um canonical um it's all equally canonical um, and it's sort of just as I mentioned before it's just sort of churned out into these say law videos and things which can often be interesting but but nonetheless there's mm-hmm. usually in those sorts of things there's usually not with some exceptions uh, so there's usually not very you know distinctions or very clear distinct distinctions drawn between you know some of the material that maybe Tolkien was working on at the end of his life and um, some of the material that for example is Um, in the published Silmarillion, so sort of both, um, you know, both periods or both um, areas of sort of creativity um, are sort of taken as almost equal. Um, Do you think that's a problem for sort of the understanding of Tolkien as a kind of literary writer as opposed to, you know, a world builder or fantasy writer in the sort of Brandon Sanderson sense?
1: (laughs) Yes, uh, I. I that, that, that is a sentiment I would agree with. I mean, uh, I mean, it's the thing. That, the thing. Is, uh, I'm reminded of one of his letters, where essentially mm. he um, he notes that the tendency to treat this as all as, as all of a sort of vast game
2: isn't mm.
1: isn't actually very good for me, <laughs> because he, <laughs> because he he says he finds it very um, he finds he, he says he finds it very addictive, and honestly, mm. I think um, you know. I think mo- most most modern geeks would agree. World world build, world building is a very very fun activity, but uh, mm. it doesn't actually get stories written. That's the, that's the thing. It's um, people people yep. spend years and years and years develop, developing a invented world and don't do anything with it. We, yep. In our case, we're lucky that Tolkien actually wrote stories stories as well as developed the world.
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah absolutely. Um, so. I guess just to briefly look at uh, part two, there are a few, um, I guess, notable things in this. Uh, there's the famous, or at least to Tolkien fans, famous essay of um, Ozenwa Kenta, um, which is published here, I think, fully for the first time, at least in accessible form. Uh, descriptions of characters, um, sort of discussions of sort of Elvish I guess telepathy for want of a better word, or mind pictures as Tolkien calls them. So this section this second section, there are a few sort of, you know, interesting tidbits. There's um metaphysical discussions of Elvish reincarnation. Um I honestly don't have too much to say about this section, but was there was there anything of interest? Um I suppose from my point of view, the only or the most interesting thing was the idea that the Numenoreans um could not grow beards and that therefore we should not imagine Aragorn or <laughs>
1: Yes, or, uh wee uh, a wee while back, you know, this is this is well before I actually got we got my hands on the book, because mm. I was seeing a particular quote uh do the rounds um mm. do the rounds mm. in the fan community, I made a point of um writing a writing a relatively extensive essay defend, defending bearded elves <laughs> and uh and wills. Mm. Mm.
2: Um,
1: because um yes, I mean essentially as I think my conclusion was if you if you ignore if you ignore that particular note, which is a very very late one from nineteen twenty two I believe
2: mm, and, mm.
1: and you ignore the you ignore the elves from the Hobbit as sort of a, uh, the Rivendell el the Rivendell elves as a cultural oddity there's, <laughs> It's actually there's actually about the same amount of it, of um of evidence for bearded elves in tolkien's world as there is for bearded men
2: hmm hmm.
1: <laughs> I mean as bizarre as that actually sounds and uh, i'm sure that, that courtesy of peter jackson i don't think you'll ever you'll, you'll ever sort of see people um visualize um bearded elves as being particularly common but, uh, but yeah i mean we've got, we, we know we've, we kept, we've we've got at least one from um from you know the published lord of the rings and and, and allusions allusions to uh, one more in um allusions to one more in um the of non canonical material.
2: Um, mm-hmm. interestingly
1: mm-hmm. enough, um one other contradiction I'd point out there is that in fact that, that very essay that mentions beards references the beard of Thaedin.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It, re- it references Thaodon and Aima as having beards. Except mm-hmm. that courtesy of Unfinished Tales, both Theodon and Aima um, through the through the, through the maternal line actually have Numenorian ancestry themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yep so yeah so yeah that it, it it gets a bit it gets a bit messy um quite apart from the fact that given given and this is quite interesting if you if Tolkien had spent enough time for, you know because obviously he spent so much time thinking about um wish population rates based off the first third of the first third of the book
2: mm-hmm. he should have he should
1: have actually realized that within thousands of years pretty much every human inhabitant of the West, <laughs> of the western part of Middle earth would have at least some descent from Numenor.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. I I also um one other thing I'd also mention, um and this just goes to show, uh, you know, the um you know you know, canon, canon is a very tricky beast here. And yep, and yep. the the fourth the fourth um um subsection on hair it, as it mentioned it mentioned that Muriel muriel's mother had uh, had dark hair
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, we know from the history of middle earth um, war of the jewels she had silver the hair there
0: yeah right yeah
1: so we've we've, we've yeah. got um you know the same they're relative, you know the same character you know to be, both of them liked writing curiously enough um, <laughs> um having, having different hair colors and of course um I don't think anybody going in would have picked Gilgalad as
2: having
0: silver hair. Mm. No, I certainly wouldn't have or didn't. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's the second, the second, the um, second section. So th- there are a few, you know, interesting um, little chapters there, but it's really in part three that we get some of the more interesting material, at least from my point of view, yes. and
1: for me. Okay. Um, the, the, yeah, go on. In, in, a, in a sense, of, of the, the, part, the parts of the book get more interesting as you, the further on you progress.
2: Mm, mm.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so, the, the parts for me in this, <laughs> the third section um, notes on the Elvish economy and dwellings in Middle-earth, because, of course, I'm interested, I guess, in material culture and questions yep. of <laughs> economy and things like that. And,. Um, we get so little of that, I mean, explicitly described in Tolkien, there are hints and and things. Um, And, you know, I'm not sort of of the George R. R. Martin camp, which suggests that, you know, Tolkien needs to necessarily outline every detail of Aragorn's tax policy Uh, um, or indeed to describe it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But um, given, given the sort of nature of the text that he's working with, but uh, we do get a couple of, Tidbits, just short sections here on sort of yeah. the um, again, it, it relates mostly to the first stage and even the I guess year of the trees, which you could class as the first stage, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so, I, yeah.
1: I, I, I'm thinking of the Elvish economy. I've always thought it interesting mm. that the, um, uh, the the most thorough treatment of economics Tolkien ever gives in his published works is in the Hobbit.
0: Yeah, that's well, that's probably true, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because we have the.
1: The, 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 uh, the, the, the late trading time, relationships. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. And, of course, there are there are sort of hints in the Sumrillion really and and elsewhere that the dwarves um, are sort of trading people. Um, and, of course, in that essay we've already mentioned in um, Morgoth's Ring, um, or is it? No, uh, Peoples of Middle-Earth, I think it is. Um, dwarves and Men, it, it sort of does talk about... Um, the dwarves quite a lot there in their sort of relationship with early men and how they mm. you know, sort of uh, um, mutually beneficial relationship with
1: oh, to yes. I mean agriculture you, you, and all of that. You, you you can definitely sort of see a sort of specialization mm. of labor of labor going on there. Though yep. I mean, as interesting as it is, I mean, and um, I mean, and the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien can deal with this question of you know how did Sauron feed his armies? Well, we know how he fed his armies because Tolkien mm. tells us he had mm. the, basically the big slave labor farms off. Off in, the, off in the south southern corner of them um mm, mm. The problem is trying to apply that to angband you're getting into trickier trickier situations how does <laughs> yeah. morgoth feed his armies?
0: yeah
1: yeah that's a good question underground mushroom farms or what the <laughs> earth is going on but, mm, yeah i mean funny thing is that the notes of elvish economy um the other one that, um, that, that, that the, the bit of the out of that that really jumped out at me as being very interesting was mm-hmm. it mentions that Fiano did a bit of mineral prospecting. Um, yes, yes. When he when he turned up and mm. that, that, you know they they were able to locate sort of silver silver copper and tin in Valyrian. So mm. and, and so thus you know th- th- thus thus they would have had bronze and. Though Tolkien also notes that they had comparatively comparatively little gold in Beleriand, uh, apart from the stuff in the River Sirion um, down mm. in mm. So, um, So interestingly enough, um, he also mentions that the Noldor brought a whole bunch of gold with them, mm. which actually I mean, okay, so he's giving us these details on these details on Fianor, you know, prospecting in Beleriand, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um, if if they're bringing all sorts of gold over the grinding ice at that um, (laughs) into, Mm. uh, from Valinor, I mean, gold, gold mining is very environmentally destructive. Mm. And (laughs) this is one thing that always kind of irritated me because, well, okay, this is this is again sort of like a world building query that I'd have, you know, is, mm. um Tolkien, Tolkien, addresses the environmental consequences of, say, Saruman's, um,
2: mm.
1: you know, Saruman's te- technological development. What about the, uh, the environmental consequences of the Noldor?
2: Mm. I mm. mean,
1: and, and also, Gareth, from, from the, from the maps we've seen, there are, there are no, there are no sort of significant rivers or floodplains in Balinor, so where are they getting the gold from?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I think that gets to something that I thought I had when I was reading this two-page note on the Elvish economy. Um, for those listening, page two ninety-seven, um, and that is that a lot of this late material starts to feel like um, historical revisionism, um, as if he's, you know, late in his life, he's approaching his own texts. You know, as though he was sort of a historian of the period, and mm. and you know he, he's he's trying to he's trying to discover some of the real answers. Like, well, what's what lies behind the myth? Well, it wasn't that Feanor was just um, you know fiery with passion. He was actually sort of he actually had economic motives, like you know discovery of silver, copper, and tin. And it says here that um, before his death, Feanor had explored as much as possible the ground looking for metals, like. None of that is in the Silmarillion, right? We have no <laughs> sense that Feanor is exploring the ground for metals for economic reasons, right? Um, in fact, well, it's been a while since I've read it, but my recollection is that the Silmarillion suggests that he's killed fairly quickly, right, upon his arrival. He is,
1: he is. I mean, he yeah. he, he he burns the ships. And That's right. At Luska, wild, yeah. And while the Noldor are essentially encamped there, Morgoth, Morgoth comes up with a, one of his patented cunning plans to essentially um, take <laughs> mm. them unawares and drive them into the sea, which goes mm. rather terribly for Morgoth, except that Fiano can't help himself and um, mm. gets himself isolated and killed. Mm. Um, I mean, you can, I mean, you can, you can, you can, insert the sort of the the the, um, the mineral prospecting story in there um, because it would imply that sort of Fia- Fiano was encamped um, in, encamped around this area for some mm-hmm. time. Before, before Morgoth came up with his, um, came up with his plan.
0: Mm, mm, yep. Um, so one can sort of assimilate that, I suppose. Um, but then it goes on to say the elder were not in the common elder period ignorant of horticulture or agriculture. They began to develop those, but then it says, but by the teaching of Arome, um, their practice was greatly improved. And you know we've sort of already mentioned that he's sort of extending this period, this migration period of the elves.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: So in some of that early material in the first part,
1: you now giving him yeah, thousands
0: of years. To yeah, thousands that. of years. Yeah. Um. But so <laughs> some of this material, you know, like like this passage, starts to feel a little bit, as I said, sort of revisiony, um, as opposed to mythological, but we still have the gods or the Valar showing up. Arome is still a character. He's not, he's not quite at the point where he's saying, well, the Valar are sort of invented myths, you know, sort of, but, but he's sort of almost, I feel like he's almost going in that direction, sort of trying to come up with, you know, uh, material, (laughs) material explanations.
1: I mean, the the Um, other, the other one is, um, where he, uh, he talks about the 50-year migration period from the, for, for the Numenoreans when they were arriving on the island. Mm, mm, uh,
2: yes, yep. which,
1: and, I, and I thought, that's actually a bit of historical revisionism that actually feels like it works.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that too. And then, of course, is it in the the lives of the Numenoreans or the next one, I think, the lands and beasts of Numenor? So this is again in the, the third section. I'm um, just trying to find... Yes, yeah, so page 33... Oh, I, I quickly
1: take this opportunity to... Yeah, yeah, go for it. note yeah. that um, the founding of Nargothrond has, um, if, for, a, for a fairly fragmentary piece, it it has it has one hell of a little twist. Mm. Um, with the... Um, provide, providing some additional character backstory to meme.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I felt like that piece was really trying to... Demonize Meme even more than he already is, um, presumably in order to make Felagund look good um, Mm -hmm. and sort of blameless. Uh, Because of course, in the Silmarillion, we sort of get that note about well, it was the original Nagathron was originally the home of the Petty Dwarves, and in the Children of Húrin, and I guess in the Silmarillion as well, Meme sort of says you know the Noldor changed all the names, and there's this sort of perhaps sinister.
1: Yeah, so you've got that. Uh, you've got that sort of the um, where he's talking, where he's talking with Turin about the mm. uh, about that type of um, that root vegetable, where he basically says, um, <laughs> "Yes, you yeah. know, the proud ones from across the sea couldn't be asked, you know, couldn't be asked learning about."
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. yeah, and the grey elves uh, know it not, or, or whatever he says.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, so, yeah, my response to that little piece was. Um, yeah, yeah. no, and this is the case with Galadriel as well. He seems to want to make saints out of the Noldor as he well, so gets older. Some of,
1: some of them.
0: Some of the, yes, yeah, some not, yeah. The, I, mean, I guess the 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 the, the Fingolfin side of things, yeah, or yeah. the. I,
1: I mean, uh, I I I I think Galadriel in particular gets
2: yes quite yeah,
1: notorious yeah. whitewashed in later years. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah.
1: I mean, I'm I'm willing to forgive the I'm willing to forgive the Finrods that the. the uh, you know the 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 um, the, the the Finrod ha- hagi- hagiography, um, <laughs> basically because you know the the, the 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 dude wound up suffering.
0: Well, true, yes, yes, he, he did. Yep, <laughs> yep. If anyone deserves, yeah, um, I mean, not that he was ever quite as, shall we say, grey a character as Galadriel was, anyway. I mean, he was, um, but there is at least that that sort of. Implication of Nolder and sort of colonialism in the Silmarillion, but mm. that's its own, its own topic, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think, I think I found the, the piece back to the Lands and Beasts of Numenor section, uh, where it says, and I uh, quote, the legends of the foundation of Numenor, that is the Akalabeth slash Silmarillion or whatever, um, often speak as if all the Adain that accepted the gift set sail at one time and in one fleet. But this is only due to the brevity of the narrative. So again, we see some of that revisionism. In more detailed histories, it is related, as might be deduced from the events and the numbers concerned, that after the first expedition led by Elros, many other ships, alone or in small fleets, came west, bearing others of the Edain, either those who were at first reluctant to dare the great sea but could not endure to be parted from those who had gone, or some who were far scattered and could not be assembled to go with the first sailing. Um, then he goes on to talk about um, some of the, the fleet, um, the types of ships they had, and, you know, goes into a lot of, again, we, we have numbers. So he says, the fleet of Elros is said to have contained many ships, according to some, 150 vessels, to others, two or 300, of course, we don't know what these sources supposedly are, um, and to have brought, quote, thousands of men, women, and children um, of the Adai, and probably between 5,000 and at most 10,000. Um, and then he goes on to say that after a thousand years the population seems not to have been or to, not to have much exceeded 2 million this was greatly increased later but outlet was found in numenorean settlement settlements in middle earth before the downfall the population of numenor itself may have been as many as 15 million um so quite quite a big um quite a large yeah, population a lot, of, a lot of people in a, a pre-modern pre-industrial Economy, um, but yes, we, we get that sort of. Um, sorry. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: yeah we, we get that sort of. Um, yeah, go on, go on.
1: Oh, no, no, I was just simply just pointing out that uh, yeah, that is a lot of people in pre-modern, pre-modern setting. Um, um, officially, uh, especially, <laughs> you know, um, exact, in, in terms of you know the ag- agricultural production, and you probably. You Imagine that, um, you know, they were mm. they were uh, Tolkien probably wouldn't have visualized his um, his Numenorians living in high rise buildings.
0: Well, Sorry. probably not. Um, <laughs> but uh, one could imagine something like the insulae of, of, of Rome, ancient Rome, mm. um, although quite cramped and probably quite unsanitary. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, is, of course, said to be this beautiful city, so I guess we wouldn't want to. Want to cram it full of people quite like that, but but yes, th- they'd have to live somewhere, um, presumably in, in at least in part in some of those uh, cities and havens on the coasts. But he doesn't really go into detail about about that, unfortunately. But in any case, yeah, I mean that that's a you know again an interesting example of, and of course this is comes at the end of the discussion of various um, native trees and plants and other features of ecology, including of course the dancing bears which we've. Yeah. Um, Already mentioned. <laughs>
1: I, I also, uh, it's often been noted that uh, tol- mm. Tolkien, talking doesn't seem to have been very much of a cat person. Um, he notes <laughs> that there was a particularly nasty type of wild cat um, mm. mm. on Umanor when they found it. Um, it uh, but yes, he, he goes into great detail about um, about dogs and what have you, not necessarily being needed for work purposes apart from or... <laughs>
2: Mm,
0: mm yeah so i mean that's a um, that's an interesting again one of the more perhaps rich sections that does reward you know a fairly close close reading and for those who enjoy some of tolkien's ecological writing i guess broadly construed that's...
1: Yes. i mean also um, i mean it although it doesn't tackle the issue directly mm. i mean it's it is actually one of the uh, one of the world building queries that people often have with um, with, with the settlement of Numenor hmm. is that the House of Hardor who were blonde haired were the most numerous, so therefore, why hmm. are the Numenorian descendants all invariably dark haired <laughs> um, and you sort of, and you can sort of this sort of touches on it um, the implication being that um, the descendants of the House of Bayor who lived in the hmm. West, um, that 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 was later the area where the faithful were most dominant. So um, yes.
2: yeah
1: so poten- potentially you're looking at um, you're you're looking at the faithful being more inclined to be dark-haired, and the king's men more inclined to be blond. Uh, mm-hmm. mm.
0: Potentially. potential. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's another interesting piece of speculative <laughs> piece of speculation, yeah, I cool. guess.
1: Even the, no, even the uh, the Numenorians who turn up and tell Elmar the um, the mm-hmm. unfinished uh, story in the *People's Middle Earth*, the Numenorians there are described as um, as, as basically you know, dark dark haired and all the rest of it, looking rather like elves.
0: Yeah, it's been a while since I've read *Tell Elmar*. That's a, that's in uh, Morgoth's Ring, isn't it? In uh, the where, is People's
1: it? Of Middle Earth. People's Middle
0: Earth, right? Yes, I, I always get those two confused. That's right. Yes, Morgoth's Ring is is the the more sort of metaphysical stuff, isn't it? And, mm. Yeah, I mean, I think like so many subjects, there just seems to be, there are contradictory accounts in, in Tolkien's writings and, and mm-hmm. he seems to have changed his mind. Um, one, uh, I don't know, I mean, one tendency I've seen online in some areas, and again, this comes back back to questions of canon and things like that, is this idea that Tolkien's final, thoughts about something are, are sort of the, the more canonical ones. And mm-hmm. I just – I don't see how that can be supported just because um, it's sort of – he's, he's – you know, the day he passed away is, is, is an arbitrary date really and um, instead I think it's more interesting to look at Tolkien's life in sort of artistic phases well, and yes, – and,
1: yes. I mean, and per- pers- yeah. personally, I think if, if, you are, if you are choosing to apply canon to Tolkien – the, mm. the works published by him in his own lifetime, which were demonstrated, which were to be distributed for public consumption,
2: mm. Mm. that
1: is essentially the canon. All else is yes, yes, um, yes. all else is sort of variable and changeable. Um, yep. So therefore, even if that um, that late note about um, about about beardless elves, that that comes <laughs> after mm. the Lord of the Rings, but since it contradicts Lord of the Rings. You kind of have to go with what it actually says in the actual published book because
2: that's that <laughs> the
1: book that was that was distributed and published by published by the author himself and um, made available. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I tend to agree with that as well. So yeah, I guess just to switch gears a bit, I wanted to discuss briefly the editorial style of the book. And so, of course, I've already mentioned that this is edited by Carl Hostetter. Yeah, of course, not Christopher Tolkien. Christopher passed away. Prior to the book's um, assembly and publication, and Hostetter, uh, I think for the most part does a pretty good job. But you know, he usually introduces each section and each piece, and, and mm-hmm. for the most part, his writing is fairly clear. Uh, for those who've read the history of Middle Earth, there are abundant footnotes and things like that, <laughs> so you'll you'll like that. But um, for the most part, I found that his style was not hugely intrusive. Did you um, did you appreciate the the sort of editorial decisions? sort of made in the book or, or,
1: or... Well, i mean he 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 is a, he is a bit different from christopher mm, christopher mm. will um it will invariably sort of um um tie tie his notes of um of a given passage back to back to a variant of that passage three books earlier
0: yes yeah <laughs> so you <laughs> yeah,
1: know we, we 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 sort of you know he, he, Christopher's very much focused on the development of mm. um, of the ideas across um, across the sixty years of the material um, yeah. the he's working with. Um, Hofstetter isn't; he's more mm. focused on um, he's more focused on sort of giving us these giving us these texts as as they appear. With um, I mean. He, i mean quite apart from the appendices which we'll 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 get to because um, mm-hmm. um we'll get to because uh, he um, he yeah um he he clearly had sort of ideas there um <laughs> there is one there is one moment where I thought that um yeah christopher wouldn't have done this um where he talks about say, um where he, where he, uh, he this is in reference i think to the um the taking the myths out of the mythos Sort of thing where he says mm-hmm. uh, he says I, I you know I personally think that um, le- you know that left to his own devices Tolkien might have Tolkien might have altered uh, his story so that the, um, the sun and the moon get transformed into uh, uh, transformed into the ball of gas and the um, the ball of rock and mm-hmm. and and it looks like they've always been like that mm-hmm. um, as a sort of cha- change the a um, a removal of magic from the world after the fall of Numenor, which um again, you know, it's 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 interesting speculation, but I, I remember thinking, yeah, Christopher would have written something like that.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. Um yeah, I mean, from my from my point of view, he does he does have more of a sort of editorial presence, uh, yeah, in, in the the context of the book, quite apart from the appendix, which, as you mentioned, we'll get to. So yeah, for those who are used to, I guess, the, the history of Middle Earth, um, there are of course some differences there, but I think perhaps in some respects it has more in common with Unfinished Tales as a sort of standalone. Yes, yes
1: I I think it does because um, mm. the, the history of Middle Earth is very much a tracing development. That's yep, not yep. something you see with Unfinished Tales. Unfinished Tales is essentially presenting us with a grab bag of literally tale of literally Tolkien to book <laughs> stories and essays that were mm. not finished.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, from memory, it does. Christopher doesn't introduce each section there, does he? Well, only only in the introduction itself. So there's not sort of a uh, there's not too much sort of editorial presence apart from in the context of. Uh, notes, footnotes and things, which there are plenty. That's the editorial practice. And, and of course, there is a section in front of the book titled Editorial Practices. So for those who are interested, he lays that out fairly clearly. And as we've already mentioned, the three sections are grab bags of material that don't always necessarily relate, uh, particularly cohesively. So obviously, Hoster has sort of developed these divisions, um, at least in part going off some of Christopher's early organisation of some of the material but of course it's it's important to note that these are not Tolkien's own this is not Tolkien's own organisation I mean that that's obviously that's probably going to be obvious to everyone but just to, to make that clear I suppose let's let's then get to that appendix so there are a couple of appendices in the book so as I mentioned we finish with the rivers and beacon hills of Gondor and we have a couple of appendices so we have number 1 the metaphysical and theological themes which is written by Hostetter then we have a little more Scriptive appendix glossary and index of quenya terms so um, uh, that's just you know to aid comprehension and then then of course we have an index but of course it's really that first appendix that is of interest and I know a couple of reviews I think the journal of Tolkien research pointed this out but um, well from my point of view this this so-called appendix is very much a kind of um, a piece of editorial work so um, just before I, I give my opinion I guess what did you take from from this um, okay, it's, in the appendix?
1: In in one sense, it's both too short and too long. <laughs> it's um, too mm. long in the sense of I'm not actually here. I uh, there's a case of saying it really shouldn't be in there at all. And,
2: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: okay, I mean, okay, um, pointing out that the um, pointing out that the the, the the Valar and the Maya in terms of it, their, their bodies and spirits is
2: mm-hmm.
1: is, a, is very much very much in accordance with the Platonist um, the the Platonist metaphysics, whereas the uh, the incarnate so elves and men is much more Aristotelian. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's you know, there, there's you know there's there's nothing groundbreaking about pointing that out. It's just I dare say um, pointing that out really isn't 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 not really for the scope of the book, um, mm-hmm. and. And it's, it's too short in the sense of it's it, it's a subject matter that I think I think should be treated more thoroughly. So you know if if um you know if there was you know it, if you were sort of take, taking you know taking the sort of um you know, the, com- the, the comparison piece of um, Plato versus Aristotle slash Aquinas and mm. um, turning that into a sort of full length study, then that would be that would be absolutely fine. It's just uh, I'm not sure this is really the place this is really the place, um, yeah. place for it.
0: Yeah so I should say for the, for the listener um, in this appendix um, hosted a more or less quote minds Tolkien to make a series of points relating to uh, various theological themes like body and spirit, existence, contingency of for some reason it's, <laughs> it's organized like that uh, Fall of man the (laughs) the fall of man holomorphism marriage odor of sanctity prime matter etc so these are all very sort of catholic ideas and he's sort of making the claim making the um making the argument i suppose that that tolkien's Letter 172, where he says, of course, that Lord of the Rings is fundamentally religious and Catholic work, very famous quote, is, is sort of literally true um, in, in some sort of very deep sense. So oh, no, to I, to I see... To, to, I, where, yeah, go where where
1: where to point out that, um, not, uh, that uh, the appendix isn't talking about the Lord of the Rings, it's yeah, well, about that unfinished note.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. So so the, I have a few problems with that. The first is that um, he's talking about the Lord of the Rings there, which he's not yeah, talking about here. And so... <laughs> First, I think there's the question of why this appendix is actually included in the book. It doesn't seem to me that this is the place for it. And he does, he does note that a couple of authors have already written books on this topic. Um, and presumably they have, they have done a lot of justice to the topic, um, given presumably a lot more space. So I'm wondering what Hostetter felt. Or, or why Hostert felt there was a need for this. I think that this tendency to quote mine Tolkien like this is something that's been criticised by Dimitri Fimi and others, so it's odd to see this approach in a HarperCollins-sanctioned uh, publication of Tolkien's own works. I guess it's it's one approach, but you know it's certainly not one without problems. Um, you know He'll just... I mean, he's mostly quoting passages from this book, but nonetheless, it is just sort of making an argument out of, out of various pieces um with, sort of without context or at least and
1: as, guess, with, and as we've discussed uh, the, yeah. uh, the 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 text he's quote mining from should be taken with a grain of salt inherently
0: yeah yeah and of, and of course the the other the other problem is all these texts are from the last years of tolkien's life the last 10 or so 15 years so can we make it, an argument that sort of well tomism which which he seems to be particularly um interested in is the kind of meta- metaphysical basis of tolkien's work or at least his thinking in his final 15 years yeah perhaps that's interesting i think definitely as we've already discussed tolkien's sort of religious proclivities i can't remember i can't remember i heard this quote but i, I wish i could find it again but i read somewhere recently, maybe it was on twitter or somewhere but it said someone had said of tolkien's final 10 or so years that it was as though they're an inquisitor you know looking over tolkien's shoulder and you know and trying to get him to, to sort of make his work theologically consistent, especially in terms of, of, of his religious sort of beliefs. And uh, that may very well be what he's doing uh, in, in the last years of his life. And I think there is indeed evidence for that. But um, as Hostetter presents it's, it, this is a kind of, you know, again, relating to that letter where he discusses the Lord of the Rings um, as, a, as a kind of Catholic work, which is, in my mind anyway, a much more complicated question. Than that, and he also, yeah.
1: in, in his letters, um, does say something along the lines of, um, along the lines of, you know, I, 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 I don't feel the need for my work to be one hundred percent completely consistent with, um, yeah, work, yeah, with real world faith. I mean, he does yeah. say that, you know, I intend it to be consonant with um, mm, my mm. faith, but not, uh, not, yeah. not one hundred percent compliant. Yeah,
2: I
0: yeah. mean. So to take one example of his, I guess, method here, this is section Odour of Sanctity. Um, So he quotes page 242, which, just to have a look, is in the section, um, the visible forms of the Valar and Maya, and the quote runs, the Maya were usually invisible, unclad, but their presence was revealed by their fragrance. <laughs> this is an interesting part. This applied only to those uncorrupted. So, so this, of course, this is not an idea that I remember appearing in the published Silmarillion. It, um, it, the... it, it
1: it it doesn't. But uh, <laughs> I do think I do think that qualifies as one of the genuinely interesting little world building. Oh
2: yes, yes, I yeah, I love so. it. Yeah. Yes, I mean
1: you can, <laughs> you can you can you can imagine sort of uh, you know smelly saurons
2: yeah
0: yeah you know i love this i love this um this idea you know that even though they're visible you sort of know that they're around you know you start smelling roses and well that's that's nienna or something um and then he goes on to quote saint cyril of jerusalem who says that in each person the scripture says the spirit reveals his presence in a particular way for the common good the spirit comes gently and makes himself known by his fragrance. The bodies of holy people are also reported to emit a fragrance, often compared to flowers, while olive and sorry, while alive, and uh, more often at and after the moment of death, uh, the incorruptible bodies of saints have also been reported to emit the odor sancta- sanctitatis, um, even long after their death. So that's just one example of a you know comparatively. Um,
2: I guess funny, um, example, but there are, there are others. The incorruptibility of
0: saints, um, is another one. It is, uh, that is true that the elves know by proof. Oh, sorry. Men report that the bodies of some of their dead long maintain their coherence and even sometimes endure in fair form as they, if, as if they slept only. Um, and then he goes on to quote, um, or at least to discuss the Catholic position on sort of the incorruptibility of of saints' um, bodies. And then there's, of course, sections on marriage and things. And for those who are particularly online, you will know that er earlier um, in the year before the book came out, there was a little bit of a kerfuffle about um, Tolkien and his views on marriage um, online. But we don't have to get into that. But anyway, um, I guess the point
1: is he's... There's a truly, yeah, yeah. Truly um, there's a truly, interesting. a truly interesting note in the book, which Hoste's actually doesn't reference. Is the mm. note? Is the notion that um, if if one elf partner desert, deserted another one, they could remarry.
2: Yes. Yeah. So
1: in yeah. Fact, there, there was actually at one point, um, which obviously was rejected, but I think it's interesting that it wasn't there at all. That Galadriel mm. was actually Celebrimbor's second partner.
0: Oh right, yeah, yeah, interesting.
1: That, that is in this book, and and does reference.
0: Just to take one more example, just to give a good idea, the age, even the age of the world is apparently now. This this really came about what in the in the 30s when he was starting to write write Lord of the Rings and Numenor material. I guess the idea of different ages, but but he Hosted attributes this to the Catholic Church again, or the influence of the Church. Um, and he quotes in full Latin <laughs> the uh, the Roman Martyrology, uh, the Roman rite. Catholic Church's official list of martyrs and saints uh, when he goes on to talk about when it sorry goes on to talk about the sixth age of the world when Jesus was apparently born sexta Mundi Aetate. so um, you know maybe <laughs> but I guess I guess the point is all of these little elements um, again as I've already said. You know, uh, sort of quoting various parts of the book out of context and then developing sort of some argument, and he's usually I mean, quoting I'd, some. I'd
1: also point out um, that yeah, um, the, uh, the, the 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 classical Greeks had a view of ages of the world. You know, gold yes. and silver. Yeah, uh,
0: yeah, what yeah.
1: So uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, yes. the notion the notion that you know the different ages of the world. Um, I think uh, pinning pinning that on Christianity, I think, is a bit of a stretch.
0: Yes, and for those who've who've read Ovid or, you know, other Greek writers, you'll, 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 um, it's Roman, of course, but you'll have some familiarity with that. Um, then there's also a section on theistic evolution. So start to get into some more, more, um, controversial material. And as I mentioned sort of earlier, Tolkien has this sort of theistic evolution idea that he, you know, it's just, it, again, it's it's not worked into the film really, and it's not really worked into the, the myth, mythological uh, fabric of the tale as we really have it, but it is obviously something he was thinking about. And so again, Hostetter is sort of linking that with ideas um, of intelligent design um, or theistic evolution more properly put, um, which is of course very popular. So, You know, I I think it's pretty clear that he has a kind of agenda here. Um, He's really – I'm not really sure if he's trying to make an argument or if it's just, um, you know, a sort of helpful glossary of concepts for the interested Catholic
2: reader.
1: My my reading of it was um, he he, he finds that particular subject interesting, therefore therefore he'll include it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: yeah, yeah, I mean – as, as I said, I mean the the you know there there are some gen, there are some genuine quite interesting distinctions to be made between uh,
2: mm, between
1: the, the fundamental again the very Platonist way that the Imaur are, are treated in terms of their, their their relationship between body and spirit and yeah. the uh, the Aristotelian um, thing mm. of the um, of of the incarnates and I mean I would also quickly mention that um, that um, a quite that um, Although, although, um, is approaching it from a, from, you know, the appendix is presenting this sort of a Thomist viewpoint. Um, Thomism, Thomism is in large part a sort of Christianization of Aristotle.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's important to bear that in mind. So, you know, a potentially interesting, um, interesting piece, but, but perhaps, Perhaps a sort of place to include it. <laughs> it. It
1: would be to draw an analogy. It would be rather like it would. It would be rather like, if for instance, if um someone if if someone as part of a um edition of the Silmarillion, included an essay on analysing Fyano as Nietzsche as Nietzsche's Ubermensch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which itself is an interesting subject matter. It's just I yeah. don't think it has a place here.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So, um, you know, for those for those who are who who take an interest in, in Thomistic metaphysics, it might be something um, to look at. But um, yeah, as we've said, I think it's a it's an odd it's an odd place to put it. But um, and as I mentioned before, there are sort of book length treatments of this of that topic as well. Um, I believe so. You know, you, there's more that you can. Uh, you can read on it if you want to sort of expand expand your knowledge of that area. But um, again, I, I think the major issue is just that Hostetter is is taking these very late works and mm-hmm. then trying to apply them to the legendarium as a whole.
1: And I think well, as, as um, I you um, answer, I think there's it's just too little space. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, e- either e- either give us either either give us a sort of a book length treatment or don't include it today. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, somewhat odd uh, choice, but, but, you know, one that obviously, as you said, Hosteter was interested in. So, um, I guess readers can make up, uh, listeners rather, can make up their own mind as to whether they want to, to, to read, to read that. So, I guess, you know, sort of in concluding our, our review, I guess, um, perhaps a, Somewhat disjointed, somewhat frustrating book. Good to have some choices. Some some choices are perhaps not the choices I would have made in terms of sort of editorializing, but um, but I think for, well for me anyway, the big takeaway is that, you know, this is best approached as a companion of Tolkien's late writings explicitly, um, and not as a kind of as I'm already seeing happening, which I guess you know it's hard to avoid maybe, but it, it's not a it's not an encyclopedia of, of sort of the nat- natural features of Middle-earth, you know, as the title might suggest. Yes, yes.
2: I mean, um, it's, it's
0: not a a list of facts or world-building, uh, world-building facts that you can sort of just um, plug into the whole legendarium and, and sort of, you know, make it work necessarily.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, the this, this is a... This... The most important aspect of this book is it's an insight into Tolkien's creative process rather, yeah, than yeah. A, uh, rather than sort of something that sort of tells us fundamentally more about middle earth I mean it you know bits and pieces certainly do shed light on middle mm. earth, especially the nominal sections which uh, mm-hmm. I really do think are the high point of the entire book but yeah, uh, I agree, yeah. but I think that the best way of looking at it is that uh, is that this this is this is this is arguably more of a uh, more of a uh, an insight into Tolkien, Tolkien the man and uh, mm. the way the way he was trying to approach his approach his own work in his last few years. Yeah,
0: absolutely, I agree, and I think for me it really clarified. Um, you know, assuming that this is really representative of his thought in the the final years, which. Which it seems to be, if we take it in in conjunction with um, Morgoth's Ring and, or at least certain parts of it, and and some of those later volumes of the History of Middle-earth, then it does seem to represent a distinct sort of creative phase, uh, the final creative phase in in Tolkien's life, which which as we mentioned is sort of steering away maybe from this mythic phase into a kind of Theologico scientific phase of of analysis where he's looking back at the legendarium or the, you know, the material that he's created earlier in his life, even 15 or 20 years earlier, sort of during the period of the Lord of the Rings and the, that sort of efflorescence of Silmarillion writing and and that that sort of happened in the 50s. And he's sort of trying to, um, to square that with, with various primary worlds, um, I guess systems like science, at least to some extent, but also his own theology and theological ideas. And, you know, fact, as you've if suggested. I, I yeah, recall,
1: go if I recall correctly, um, although it's not in this book, I, I think it's mm. one of the uh, later history of Middle Earth books, um, mm. as, as one of the alternative origin stories for the moon is essentially Melkor's um, attempt at building an imitation artist.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 that's interesting. I
2: hadn't heard that one. <laughs> yeah, which
1: is, um, uh, you know, it's it, it, it sounds rather strange, except that uh, it might be. It, it it, I mean, it might be Tolkien's attempt to try and engage with the the scientific notion that the uh, the moon, um, the 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 matter, the matter that went to create went on mm. to sort of form the moon was yeah. originally sort of you know forcibly separated from Earth.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't um. I'm across that. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, I, <laughs> I, I like that idea actually. Yeah. So, so I guess just to to finish up then, um, would you recommend this book? And and who who specifically would you recommend it for? I guess.
1: Okay. Um. um okay. Although the introduction basically says that um, hmm. knowledge of the Silmarillion is assumed. And feel free to consult with the history of middle earth Mm. um i would not recommend that to to someone who who hasn't already read the uh the 10 11 and 12 of of the history of middle earth
2: yeah
1: before morgoth's ring um the war of the jewels and the peoples of middle earth would kind of be pre pre prerequisites before touching this one and that's you could almost say, in a strange kind of way, that um, this is arguably a sort of an appendix to Morgoth's Ring.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, I tend to agree with that. I, th- I think if you just come at this with the film really in mind, I'm not really sure it would make a great deal of sense um, because I mean, e- so e- much of Christopher's editorial e-
1: commentary yeah, in, yeah. say, um, Morgoth's Ring. Yeah. Even even if you just even if you Sorry, go so on. Even, yeah. if, even with just the Silmarillion and Unfinished Tales, um, I don't think that would be enough. In yeah, I was right. just going to say, um, yeah, you 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 yep. definitely need you you need again Morgoth. You need Morgoth's ring behind you to make sense of this. I think,
2: Hmm.
1: But not least because Morgoth's ring at least uh, gives gives us. Give, explain the con- the context of the, the the flat the flat world versus round world cosmology that tolkien's playing within the last yeah. few years
0: yeah yeah, I think that's important context all right well yeah i think i think that's that's good so a bit of a mixed i guess a mixed appraisal there um, you know will certainly be of interest to to readers of of the history of middle earth um who, who who are presumably I mean, already going
1: to be, be readers? it'll uh, yeah. also be interesting to see sort of what which um, you know which which particular nuggets of information out of that what what winds up circulating in the wider fandom.
0: Yes, yeah, I think that's uh, that's really interesting, is not it? Yeah, I mean, I think I feel like the, the dancing bears of Numenor has already become a kind of a thing. <laughs> oh yes, yes. Um, or at least, yeah. At least at I least mean, people pro- are talking about it. Yeah. I mean.
1: Yes, I mean, for for instance, the one that I mean to take to take an example, the Peoples of Middle Earth, so the volume twelve, the um, mm, the bit mm. of sort of fam- the bit of sort of you know law out of there that has sort of become uh, become sort of ubiquitous is the colour of Maesters' hair.
0: Yes, yes, yep.
1: That that that's that the hand. that's the version that. Um, that makes him out to be makes makes his hair out to be red brown. Yeah. and it's sort of you know that it's kind of become sort of common knowledge in the fandom. But, uh, but yes, you know it's it's only just a small part of the book. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to uh, mm. what, what, you know, mm. what happens to um, as the as the fandom di- as the fandom digests this particular work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we look forward to that. And of course, it will be interesting to see if any of that numinal material makes it into the um, the Amazon show. As well. I have no idea if they'd have access to any of this.
1: Yeah, at least
0: least for this first season. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Actually, before you go, um, I do want to ask you because we've had various revelations about the show. And for those who don't want to know anything about it, just clock out now. But um, it seems to be a late second-age show now, which came as a surprise to me because I was fairly convinced that we would be looking at the forging of the rings but it seems we're not or at least <laughs> i speak too soon or at least not in the way that we perhaps see it in the book so whether that means a compressed timeline or sort of you know multiple timelines or flashbacks or something so what are your thoughts about some of these revelations and i've of course been following some of your blog posts which which you've been writing after each after each revelation after from leak, yeah. for each leak yes yeah, from yeah. um various yeah, quarters, but, yeah. I
1: mean, I I, I I I was also quite surprised that um that they were well again mm. we don't know with a hundred percent certainty until we actually do the thing but
2: uh <laughs>
1: but I was I was rather surprised to learn that easel doer would be featured so early in the show you know from the thirty episode onwards
2: yeah um
1: yeah. which cause, I mean the way the way I was visualizing it was. Potentially, you know, potentially the first couple of seasons deal with the forging of the rings and in the, the, in the aftermath. Potentially, potentially you could have Elrond as a nice convenient point of view character. And then in the mm. last three seasons or so, you shift to Numenor and, um, and that, that's the point where you can get Isildur and, uh, and what have you. But, uh, yeah. yes, it, it's, it's, it, there's, there's, there's a fair amount of head scratching that, you know, each, each leak each leak that comes out almost seems to create more questions than it answers. Yeah. There's a, there was a particularly strange one, um, strange one was a couple of days ago about the, uh, about a character arriving from a character arriving um, from, from space on a meteor.
2: I have
0: no idea what to think about that one. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, it's, well, it's actually quite funny because um, mm. uh, my, in my, my attempt to try and make sense of it, in light of uh, in light of a description that uh, the character suffers from amnesia and um, hangs around with the half of, so the proto hobbits, I was actually mm. speculating mm. that that might actually be the show's attempt to to try and move Gandalf into the second age, which of course would be a direct contradiction of the of the, uh, yeah. of the text. But you know, who, who the hell knows yeah. at this point um yeah, then, yeah however someone actually someone else pointed out um really interestingly that um in one of Tolkien's poems the man in the moon came down too soon <laughs> yeah. um from the pictures of Tom Bombadil There's actually a reference to a character mm, mm. in a particular case the man in the moon a powerful magic user who um falls to earth like a meteor just before yule I don't know it was just before Christmas so uh, mm. and I thought oh. yeah that's is, is that a really – is that a very, very geeky in-joke? I don't know. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I think – was it you or someone suggested that, yeah, on Twitter, I think that it might have been yes, I, I'm firmly um, in the sort of Amazon pulling someone's leg? <laughs> Sorry? No, that's right. Yeah, no, I just said that um, – uh, yeah, was yes, it you I, or I'm someone else cap on cap Twitter hole, uh, suggested that it, be, it might have been Amazon? Yeah, pulling someone's leg. Yeah, exactly. Um so I don't know. I've sort of decided to stop following the the rumors and, and sort of wait wait for it. So um it gets a bit it gets a bit interminable. <laughs> but we'll see it soon enough, I guess.
1: Uh uh-huh. Okay. But, but but yes, of course. Um, presumably, of course, Gilgalad will be a major will be a major character in the series, and of course, uh, you, know, we've, you know, the nature of Middle Earth spec- specifies in as silver haired. So, <laughs> the question is, you know, what hair what hair colour will uh, will be yeah. to go with?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. In Jackson, he's um he's got sort of black hair, doesn't he? In the prologue, from memory.
1: Yes, yes, he um, you can see a bit of him, in he's he's dark haired.
0: Mm, yeah. No, I mean I only really yeah r- really imagined a sort of um Caliborn but of course also um I guess Thingol as well as having uh, sort of silver hair uh, but I'm sure there are others which I'm which I'm sort of forgetting but but yeah le- less less common <laughs> or perhaps more common now uh, than we thought. So I guess just to bring things to a close, then is there are there any sort of final thoughts you had on the on the book? Um, oh, um,
1: one other thing that immediately springs to mind is uh, mm-hmm. is the if due to the play, Tolkien's playing around with playing around with time and extending mm-hmm. the, uh, the the uh, the Valerian year from from ten years to one hundred and forty four. This is some quite <laughs> interesting things about. Well, first of all, is the there's the imp- there's the infamous elvish pregnancy thing which uh, <laughs> yes, he
2: needs
1: to correct himself um, yes, yep, you know, yep. the idea of a pregnancy lasting a century would be <laughs> bit. Um, yeah yeah um the other one is where he's talking about um the effect of aging as the elves cross the grinding ice, and mm, the notion mm. that the- cro- the passage of the grinding ice took hundred and forty four years of the sun, i mean. That, that just does not feel viable.
2: Yeah, that's
1: given what that's, the grinding is. You know, was, some I sort mean, of Sinai. <laughs> yeah. I mean, previously, previously there was some indication that it, that it, that it was a uh, you know twenty seven years, which, curiously mm. enough, actually lines up. the the sort of the, the twenty seven year thing is also how long Huron was in his chair on um, on mm. So you know there is that there is that sort of thing about. Um, Twenty-seven or three cubed um, years, you know, being mm. associated with, with being associated with suffering in Tolkien. So, so yes, I mean, I, I could have looked for it being twenty-seven years. Um, I'm not sure what to make of 144.
2: Mm. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's it's um it's an interesting choice, and and I, as we've already mentioned, um, it it really extends. Um, to thousands of years, that period of migration as well. Um, mm. And I guess that, I mean, for me, I always imagined that, you know, occurring perhaps over a few decades or something, but reading the Silmarillion, but perhaps um, talking in well, a I mean, it, it it it, it sort of something. I mean,
1: the distances they were traveling were, mm. were you know, were, were, were that huge. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. there were extensive distances, but not not the sort of, they wouldn't require centuries to traverse.
0: <laughs> no, not not an, And I suppose Tolkien, in part, deals with that by saying that they settle down for periods and then move on. Mm. Um, you know, they sort of, in order to grow crops and things. But even so, it's a interesting choice. So yeah, it, it, it's a it's a book with with a great deal I to think about or that gives you a great deal to think about. At any rate. Um, even if we take much of it as sort of speculative, um, sort of world building, creative process stuff. But, um, yeah, as you say, we'll, we'll see how it all gets sort of um, assimilated into the fandom and who knows, maybe the show or other adaptations. So thanks for coming on and discussing the book. Um, yeah, I think, I think that was interesting and. It'll certainly be good to see <laughs> um, yeah how it is sort of observed you know you know how it's approached in, in in ten and sort of ten twenty years when people are as familiar with it as they are now with sort of unfinished tales in the fandom and i you suppose know, even... I, I
1: do be- i be- i do believe Hostet has said that um, this will very likely be the the last um, mm, the last yeah. book out that's actually from uh... You know, yeah, from Hulking's own notes.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I sort of hope so. I think it, it needs to come to an end somewhere. And you know, I think as scholars and and as fans, uh, you know, it's good to have a, a sort of corpus of work now to to um, to approach as a body of of um, of text, and then uh, sort of have that have that there, and and then to go you know to go forward with that. And of course, new things will be published in in journals and 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 smaller articles. And, um, but you know, it seems unlikely that there's any other major material that that really needs to be. Perhaps some poems or something. I don't know. Well, I but, mean, um,
1: it, uh, I mean, um, although it's been 25 years since we've had a explicit, you know, Tolkien uh, to an to, uh, explicit book from Tolkien's notes. I mean, mm-hmm. um, those. Those linguistic um, journals that you've mentioned have
2: yeah.
1: Tolkien. Some of Tolkien's little sort of side comments on them have actually um, revealed various interesting nuggets. For instance, the uh, in back in two thousand and seven, there was the um, the revolution, the revelation of um, Sauron's original name Myron mm, That's that,
2: true. That, yeah, that, yeah,
1: which came out as part of a linguistic journal, linguistic journal entry. Yep, Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: Yeah, so when details like that get into Tolkien Gateway and things, yeah, they, they can become yeah part of the part of the general fan conception of, of the character or whatever. Um, so yeah, as we've discussed, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this. But anyway, yeah, so um, so I think for prospective readers, um, hopefully that gives you a good idea of, of the sort of contents of the book and the nature of some of the material. And um, as we've said. You know, it'll be of interest to you if if you're sort of heavily already heavily into the history of Middle Earth. Really, I think that's the best the best audience for it. And um, you know, I think it it requires close reading to an extent and some level of engage of critical engagement in order to get the most out of it. So, um, yeah, sort of recommended for for a certain kind of Tolkien fan, I suppose. I think we can we can wrap things up there. So, is there anything final you'd like to to uh, put no, or no. Um, sort of but... said said everything that can be said? <laughs> For those who do go on to read the book, of course, we hope you enjoy it and get something out of it. Um, there's a lot there to mine and and look at. So, thanks everyone, and we'll be, be na- we'll be back next time um, with the next Silmarillion chapter, uh, which we'll we'll be going
2: through. So, thanks again, and I will. See you all later.